Welcome to the Cheyenne Vineyard Podcast, bringing you a message of hope for your everyday world. If you'd like to contact us, contact us at info at CheyenneVineyard.com. You can also find out more information about the Cheyenne Vineyard Church at CheyenneVineyard.com. Thank you and enjoy today's podcast. Um, in Philippians 4.17, Paul said, I don't seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit that will come to your account. You see, when we give to God, and I wasn't going to go into this today either, but Mark, Matthew chapter 6, verse 20, 19 to 20, 21, say, do not lay up treasures for yourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In other words, I want you to lay up treasures for yourselves, but I want you to lay them up where they're going to do you some eternal good. Not where they're going to be stolen by thieves, destroyed by property, you know, property damage. I saw a beautiful pickup this week. But it had a scratch all along the side of it. And I was just thinking, boy, I bet that driver was really upset when he saw that. <laughs> you know, it's one of these trucks. I was walking with my wife this week. She works out at the Holiday Motors, and we were walking by some trucks. $40,000 plus for a new truck. So getting a scratch all along the side of one would be pretty... Disappointing, shall we say. If your treasure's laid up on earth. Okay? Jesus goes on to say in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And see, that's what God is concerned about. It's not about money. Okay, I'll get into this a little bit more, but it's not about money. And when I'm talking to you this morning, first of all, understand, I'm not on staff here. You can give $10,000 today, and I'm not going to get a penny of it, okay? I'm not accepting an honorarium, and I'm not on salary, so it's not going to benefit me, okay? Nor do I want it to, okay? It's not about me. It's really not about the church. It's about you being all that God wants you to be and receiving all that God wants for you to have. So, having laid that as a foundation, I want to talk to you this morning about living in the abundance of God's kingdom. First of all, would you agree that God speaks more often in the Bible about things that are more important to him? Is that a logical premise? Okay. Well, I think we can all agree that Heaven, hell, faith, and prayer are all extremely important subjects, right? Okay. But what I'm going to talk to you about this morning is taught on, is mentioned rather more than more often than any of those subjects. The Bible has 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 on faith but there are more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. That's four times as many. 
15% of what Jesus taught was on money and possessions. Do you realize that? Sometimes I, I first read that and I thought, really? 15% of what Jesus taught was on money and possessions. And that's more than he taught on either heaven or hell. 16 of Jesus' 38 parables were about money and possessions. And here's one that really grabbed my attention. One out of every 10 verses in the New Testament is about money and possessions. So why don't we teach on it more? Jay just told us why. Because pastors and those in leadership don't want to give you the impression that we're digging for your gold. <laughs> okay? That's not where, again, that's not where we want to go. We want you to be blessed. We want you to have an account in heaven that is rich. Okay? When you go before, stand before God, we want you to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Receive what you've sent ahead. Okay. So this series, I'm talking about God's kingdom economy. But why, I went through all the stats about all the, the, the many times more that God talks about money and possessions than he does those other things. Why is money and possessions so important to God? Well, in Matthew 3 and Luke chapter 3, we hear about John, or sorry, yeah, John the Baptist beginning his ministry. And one of the things he said was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And part of that message was, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Now, let's pick up the story. This should be on a slide for you behind me. Um, chapter 3 of Luke, verses 9 to 14. John the Baptist said, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? <laughs> You're telling us that we are facing judgment. Every, let's see, what does it say? Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I don't want to go there, so what do I need to do to avoid that? What does John say? Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Randy Elkhorn wrote about this passage saying, each answer related to money and possessions, but no one asked John about that. 
They asked what they should do to demonstrate the fruit of spiritual transformation. So why didn't John talk about other things? Our approach to money and possessions is not just important. It's central to our spiritual lives. It's of such high priority to God that John the Baptist couldn't talk about spirituality without talking about how to handle money and possessions. Jesus' first public message was the same as John's message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he began to describe what his kingdom would look like when he announced the beginning of his ministry in his hometown synagogue. He quoted from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2 in the fourth chapter of Luke. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. You know, that alone caught my attention. That's the first thing he's going to mention? Not forgiveness of sin? Not reconciliation with God? It must be pretty important. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now the word gospel means good news. But what is good news to the poor? My wife wanted me to make sure that I stress this. The gospel to the poor is you don't have to continue to live in poverty. Now the gospel, of course, is much more than that. It is forgiveness of sin. It is reconciliation with the Father. It is the hope of eternal heaven. It is the promise of the Holy Spirit to enable us to live now in this life. That's good news. But if you're poor, you want to hear that you don't have to stay that way the rest of your life. Amen? I don't want to be there. I'm, I was there. Thank God we're not there now. <laughs> All right. Well, Jesus taught about God's provision early in his ministry in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. Sorry, just having a moment there. The Lord. Yes. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the, into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows 
that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I once had a wrong understanding of this passage. I used to think that if I could just believe, God would just give me whatever I needed, right? Isn't that kind of what he's saying? But if you look at verse 26, what does he say about the birds? He says, look at the birds, consider them. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. But have you ever watched birds? How do they live? They still have to go look for those seeds. Or if it's a bird of prey, they have to go look for their prey. They have to dive to catch their prey. They're working. Okay? Now, to make it even more clear, the Apostle Paul very clearly taught in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, that we should work. Um, <clears throat> Paul wrote, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. Just for a moment. Jesus said the workman is worthy of his me. Okay? And please, 1 Corinthians 9. Yeah, it has to be. 1 Corinthians 9. He talks about having the right to forbear working or not to work so that they can devote themselves to the work of the ministry. Now, Paul himself chose to make tents. And that's what he's talking about when he's saying here, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but, because, but to give to you I'm sorry, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now, Scripture does not contradict itself. And Paul would not have written what we just read if Jesus had taught that we are not to work. You with me on that? Make sense? Okay. So what was Jesus teaching in Matthew 6? Well, I'm not sure if you noticed when we read through this, but six times Jesus mentions worry. Three times he specifically tells us, do not worry. How clear can you be? 
In verses 31 and 32, he said, Do not worry about what you'll eat, drink, or wear. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. In verse 33, Jesus promised that if we would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things would be added to us. You see, he does not want us to be distracted by pursuing all of those things rather than seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. So he said, don't worry. I've got it. I'll take care of you. Now, I think it's important that we understand that what Jesus taught here is true. Regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Okay? Throughout history, there have been famines. There have been times when food and water were scarce. Let's think of a couple of examples. When the children of Israel left Egypt and they were in the wilderness for 40 years, God supernaturally provided manna for them to eat and brought water out of a rock for them to drink. Their clothes didn't even wear out. For 40 years, their clothes didn't wear out. It reminds me of a water heater I had one time. That thing, I think it lasted 25 years. It's like, really? The car I drive, it's a 96 Honda Odyssey. About a year ago, a little, more, a little less than a year ago, it had 244,000 plus miles on it when the spot, or odometer quit. It still runs great. So I can't justify trading it off and getting something different. It's working just fine. Well, 1 Kings chapter 17 tells the story of Elijah. And if you remember the story, Elijah had prophesied that there would be no water, there would be no rain, rather, unless he said so. (laughs) In other words, God's saying, there's not going to be any rain unless I tell my prophet there's going to be rain. But then God tells Elijah, go to the brook Cherith, and I'm going to provide for you there. So what happens? He gets there, and he drinks from the water, water from the brook, and a raven comes and brings him bread and meat in the morning and in the evening. Now that was great for a while, but because there hadn't been any rain, eventually the brook dried up. So it's like, okay, well, something else is going to have to happen here. So again, God speaks to his his prophet and says, go to a widow of Zarephath. I've commanded this widow to provide for you. So he goes to Zarephath, and he meets this woman who's out gathering some sticks, and he says to her, can you give me a drink? And she says, sure. Then he says, can you give me some bread? And she says, I don't have any bread. All I have in the house is, is what it, how does it say it? Um, Please give me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, as the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. At this point, if I were Elijah, I would be saying, 
God, what? Did I miss it? She can't feed me. But Elijah said to her, don't fear. Go and do as you said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she goes, goes and does what Elijah says. And she and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Now, one side point here. How did God provide for Elijah? He heard what God said and obeyed. God said, go to the brook. On my way. God said, go to Zarephath. He goes to Zarephath. When the widow says, I don't have any bread, what do you think he did? Okay, Lord, what are you saying? Okay, every time. And then when God spoke to him, he gave a word to the, the widow that saved not only him, but also the widow and her family. Now, some other things to think about. Just some examples. What was Jesus' first miracle? Okay. And that wasn't a bottle. <laughs> I can't remember how many gallons of wine that was in the... the uh, I'm not sure what the person's title was, but the guy in charge of the wedding, kind of running the wedding, said, this is the good stuff. Why'd you save it till now when everybody's already drunk? You know? Um, later on, Jesus fed 5,000 men, plus women and children, with five loaves and two fish, and they had 12 baskets full left over. In the next chapter of Matthew, Jesus feeds 4,000 men with, with women and children, plus the women and children, and they, with seven loaves and two, or a few little fish, and they had seven large baskets full of left, left over after that. Okay? God can do this. God's capable. We don't need to worry. Okay? Now, in the midst of a financial crisis, what Jesus said is also true. I'm just going to read this passage to you from 2 Kings 4. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Then he said, go, borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons. Then pour it into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another vessel. So the oil ceased. 
implying that if there had been more vessels, there would have been more oil. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons live on the rest. Looks like God took care of it. What happened when Jesus was questioned about paying the temple tax? Do you remember that story? He tells Peter, go. Cast in a hook in the sea and take the fish that comes up first and when you open its mouth, you'll find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Now, these are miraculous things that God has done. Generally speaking, as we read earlier, God expects us to work and he wants to bless our work. But if there is no work, then what do you do? You look to God You say, what do I need to do? And let me ask you a question. Jesus addressed worry in Matthew 6. What do you think the antidote for worry would be? Okay, we can say it different ways. Worry is the opposite of faith or trust. If I trust that Jesus is going to take care of me, I don't need to worry. I suspect you're all human beings, I think. And I suspect you have the same struggle I have had, trust, trusting God. But why is it so hard for us to trust God? We've read these stories, we know about them. Why is it so hard? Well, Jesus wants to ask his disciples a question that may help us understand our difficulty in really trusting him. In Matthew 16, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I the son of man am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah are one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Jesus knew who he was. He said, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? He knew who he was. He had no doubt. But who do you say that I am? He wasn't saying, who do the scriptures say I am? Or what have you been taught that I am? He was asking, what do you really believe in the depth of your heart? What do you really believe? Do you remember what Peter said in response to Jesus' question about who, who am I? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus' response to him was, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, 
what I want to say to you from that is it goes beyond intellectual comprehension. It's what I've come to call transrational. It goes beyond the rational. It transcends just the rational, natural mind. We need to have the revelation of the Holy Spirit to show us the truth of what is in the Bible. Because the fact that something is true does not help us unless we believe it's true. But if we know in our heart of hearts that God is able and eager to meet all our needs, we will be able to trust him. Now, give me, let me give you a couple of uh, other things that might have made it hard for us to trust God. I believe it's misplaced trust. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, Paul wrote, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches but in the living God. So what's he saying? Don't trust in riches. Those can be gone. Think about the crash of 2008. How many people lost half of their holdings in that crash? Don't trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Next week, we'll look at the end of that verse. The word haughty means to have an excessively favorable opinion of one's own ability. And that is the other thing that we have misplaced trust in. Because Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 and 18 say, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you power to get wealth. So where does your wealth come from? Your own abilities? I don't think so. Who gave you those abilities anyway? Who made you? Who formed you in your mother's womb? Who gives you health? So you can get up every day and go to work and earn a living. Who gives you the intelligence, the wisdom, the insight, the abilities to do your job well? <clears throat> now the power to get wealth isn't the ability to magically multiply dollars. It is the ability, or it includes the strength to use whatever abilities God gave us. It can also include wisdom to use resources in a way that benefits those around you and makes, it a, profit, makes a profit for you in return. Okay, so you have some resources available to you. God's ideal is that you, you know, he be your business partner if you're in business. Okay? God wants to work with us and he wants to help us use the resources he's given us 
to benefit people around us to the point that they're grateful and say, I want that. Chris, I want that cup of coffee. You know, or whatever your business is. See, it says in Proverbs 28, 25, he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. Now, this isn't scripture, but my response to that is, he who trusts in himself will struggle. <laughs> okay? Now, we already said that we need the revelation of the Holy Spirit to understand the scriptures. Well, let's go through some scripture because it's going to be the Bible that God uses. The Holy Spirit will use the Bible that he inspired to reveal who God is. So let's look at a few passages that give us some insight into his ability to provide for us. First of all, there are two names of God. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am Almighty God. Now, the Hebrew name translated Almighty God here is El Shaddai, which means the God of more than enough. The God of plenty. The God of abundance. It's like, there's no limit. In Genesis 22, we see that God tested Abraham's commitment to him by telling him to sacrifice his only son, who was the son of promise, Isaac. And Abraham's just about ready to do that. Got the knife raised to plunge it into the heart of his son. And the Lord stops him and shows him a ram that's caught by its horns in a thicket. You can imagine being in that situation. I would be very relieved. <laughs> I would be very grateful. It's like, oh, wow. So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide. And that's another Hebrew name. Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord, our provider. So even the very names of God tell us that he is our provider. But then we have many scriptures that teach that God owns everything. Let's start with Genesis 14.22, and we're going to run through these pretty quickly. Genesis 14.22, Abram said that God is the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. He owns it all. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 50, verse 10, every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts in Haggai 2.8. I really like this one, 1 Chronicles 29, 11 and 12. All that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. So he owns it all, and he reigns over it all. It's all his, and he can do with it what he wants. Revelation 19 
I'm glad I didn't write the whole thing down because I couldn't read it anyway. <laughs> Revelation 19.16, though, tells us that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the king. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Paul wrote that God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus Christ is our King and he is our Lord. He's awesome. And yet when Jesus came to earth, became a man, began to teach, he gave a new revelation of who God was. God hadn't changed. God was still all of those things. He was still the creator. He was still the owner and possessor of all. He was still Jehovah Jireh. But Jesus said, God's your father. Fifteen times, in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus refers to God as your father. In, 26, in Matthew 5, 26 and 32, Jesus taught that God is your heavenly father. Now, some of us may not have had great dads or may not have had a dad in our life. Mine was a pretty good dad in his attitude toward us. He worked hard. He did the best, best he could to provide for us. The culture at that time wasn't uh, one in which men often expressed their affection very well or their love very well. But he did. We knew it. But also, he did what he could to provide for us, but you know, he was a carpenter. He was a farmer and not a big one. So it was hard for him to give all of that he wanted to to us. Other people have been abused by fathers or neglected by fathers. And sometimes that creates in your mind a concept of who the Father God is that is completely wrong. Because if you read Scripture and you understand the love of God for you, the love of the Father for you, there can't be any doubt in your mind. Not only have we just seen that he's able, but he wants to provide for you because he loves you. See, we know he can meet all of our needs, but does he want to? To answer that question, we should consider, who are we to him? To say it another way, what is our identity? Well, let me read Romans 8 to you. 14 to 17 says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, let's look at that word sons for just a minute. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All women and children included, are sons. What does the word sons mean? The Greek word for sons was used as a legal term 
in the adoption and inheritance laws of first century Rome. As used by the Apostle Paul, this term refers to the status of all Christians, both men and women, who, having been adopted into God's family, now enjoy all the privileges, obligations, and inheritance rights of God's children. So you see, it's a legal status. We don't want to get hung up on the gender of the term. We want to understand our legal status with God. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. For those who don't know the word Abba, I believe it's an Aramaic word, it was the first word that a child, small child could say. Daddy. Okay? The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children than heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So we are God's children. We are God's kids. But we're also heirs. Do you remember last week when Jay was talking about Genesis 128? There's a connection here. I got a new understanding of this word inheritance this week. Let me ask you a question. When do we receive our inheritance rights from Father God? Do you know that until this week, I believed I'd get them after I died? Now, when do my kids, who are my heirs, when are they going to receive their inheritance? After they die? Huh? Run that by me again? What good is that going to do them? No, my children will receive my estate. Granted, it's not like God's estate. But they're going to receive their inheritance when I die. Jesus died. And he rose. And he gave us our inheritance now. Why? Because we need what Jesus had to do what Jesus did. And we need to be doing it now, not when we die. Is that clear enough? Did you get it? Okay. Now, in addition to being the children of God, the sons of God, the heirs of God, Scripture also says that we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5.20. So we are ambassadors of Christ in his kingdom. 
1 Corinthians 3.9 says that we are God's fellow workers. We are sent into this world as the ambassadors of King Jesus and of his kingdom to bring his kingdom to pass, and he wants us to have all the resources that we need to get the job done. Why would you send an ambassador to a foreign country and cut off all supply? Why would you say, you're my fellow worker, go do this, and then say, well, I don't have anything to help you with that, you're on your own. Does that make any sense at all? God wants to make his resources available to us to fulfill his will. Now, one last one. In Matthew 9, 14 and 15, it says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, Jesus doesn't come right out and say it in plain English, but what he's saying is, I am the bridegroom. I am your bridegroom. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, believe it or not, this is the last scripture of the morning. Um, Paul wrote, I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. He's writing to the church at Corinth and he's saying, I have betrothed you to one husband. What does that make us? the bride or the wife of Jesus. What's overcoming me is we sing that song about the fire of God, the fire in Jesus' eyes. That fire is his desire for you and me. That fire is saying, I love you, and I want you to be with me. It can also, though, be directed against his enemies. You touch my bride, you'll deal with me. So, as far as provision is concerned, God loves his bride passionately and he'll provide for her lavishly. Remember, he's the king. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. He has complete authority to do with what he has, what he wants. And he wants to bless you. You okay with that? Now, having seen that God is El Shaddai, the God of more than enough, he is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. He owns everything in the world, so he's able to provide for us abundantly out of his limitless resources. 
He is our King and our Lord. There is no lack in his kingdom. He is our heavenly bridegroom who wants to provide for us lavishly. He's our heavenly father, our Abba, our daddy, who desires to bless his children. We have no need to fear that our needs will not be met. Jesus told us not to worry about where our food, our drink, and our clothing would come from. He promises that if we will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he will add all the necessities of life to us. Now, today, I wanted to lay this foundation to, understand, to help you understand God is for you. God is going to take care of you. Let me give you three purposes of God's provision. First, to bring glory, honor, praise, and worship to him from the hearts of his grateful children who live in the abundance of his kingdom. Second, to create testimonies of his goodness and faithfulness, to draw people to salvation and to greater levels of trust in him. Anybody got an NIV handy? I was going to say it in my own words, but I think scripture says it better. I think I can remember it. The third purpose of God's provision for us is this. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I think it's verse 11. You will be made rich. What? That's what it says. You will be made rich. Why? So that you can be generous on every occasion. Now, next week, we're going to look at this principle of generosity and of giving and understand a generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed, Proverbs 11.25. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will men pour into your bosom or your lap. For with the same measure that you use, will be measured to you. Luke 6.38. Even the tithing passage. Let me read this one to you. This one is heavy. This one is so cool. You know, people get all bummed out when you talk about giving 10% of your income to God. But listen to this. Listen to this. This is so cool. You can't get a better deal than this, guys. Talk about an investment. Listen. Oops. What happens when I have to fumble through the scripture and try to find them in a hurry? That's why I make my notes out so I don't waste your time. Um, okay. I'm not going to read all of it, but in verse 10. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that, that there may be food in my house and prove me, or test me now, put me to the test, the ESV says. Prove me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven. Yes. 
and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Now, the windows of heaven, that doesn't talk about money. And God's not up there just dumping <laughs> dollar bills out of heaven. What he's talking about is the revelation of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit himself and the work of what God, it's that abundance of the kingdom, spiritually speaking, healing, deliverance. Okay? But this one, and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. That's talking about money, guys. God's saying, you give to me, I'll give it back. There is so much blessing that God wants to come to you but it depends on you trusting God for your provision and then giving as he directs you. And we'll talk about 2 Corinthians 9 next week about the, um, the whole concept of giving out of a, one, one translation is hilarious heart. Be a hilarious giver. Not just a cheerful giver, a hilarious giver. It's like, come up and put your offering in the, the little uh, bucket there, and it's like, yes! <laughs> I sent it on ahead. So, okay, guys, I think that's enough for this morning. Thanks, Ernie. This is going to be good. <laughs> mm. Mm. But that thing that Arnie finished with uh, was something that I hadn't seen uh, from that Malachi 3 passage uh, about our giving. Uh, I'd understood the relationship between giving and receiving, sowing and reaping financially, and have operated in that truth for a long time. But to understand that our giving, our generosity to God has a direct effect on the level of revelation and operation of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that's, that is huge. So, yeah, what, what does that mean for us as, as a body? Well, as we become more generous in, in our offerings here, our church is able to be more generous out there and as we, in our giving, experience more of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our families, and then corporately, as, as that happens when we gather, we're, we're going to see more of the work of the Holy Spirit in our city. And 
I'm excited about that. <laughs> and yeah, thanks, Arnie. Um, God's on you on this. Amen? Yeah. So, Father, I, I just pray. I pray for myself and I pray for each of us and each of our families, Lord, that you would you'd move us into more generosity, not only with the church, but just with, with people we encounter who, who have needs. That the church here would be a storehouse, that we could be more generous with, with the city, and Lord, that you would release more revelation to us individually and corporately as a body and release more of the anointing and the operation of the Holy Spirit within us individually and as a body. And I, I just thank you for what you're going to do through this. I, I thank you, God, that you are our provider. That there's no scarcity, there's no lack in your kingdom. It's expanding, and, and you are generous. And we're your kids. So, Lord, just release revelation to us in this. Help us walk in it. And we ask for more of your Holy Spirit, more of your anointing on us individually and corporately. Lord, we want to move more into your ways, into your kingdom. We thank you. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.